break today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. It's been a really brutal couple of weeks for all of us. With two mass shootings in as many weeks, it seems as though the conversation about gun control legislation and real policy reform is back in our collective consciousness. If the last year has taught us anything, it's that these destructive and oppressive systems that define so many lives in this country don't have to remain the status quo. We get to imagine something better. Yet in the national debate around gun reform, it seems like we're on a never-ending merry-go-round where the powers that be just don't ever budge. We take a step forward, and then we go right back. Following the tragedies that played out in Atlanta and Boulder over the last two weeks, there's a national conversation around what needs to happen to finally move the needle on our gun violence epidemic. One area that could spur real and meaningful change is the implementation of something called red flag gun laws. Here to talk with us about what exactly that means and whether or not the political will exists for substantial reform on guns is someone who is a leading voice on this topic. Robin Thomas is the executive director of the Giffords Law Center, and she joins us now. Robin, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. So you testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee last week and argued to lawmakers that extreme risk protection orders could be implemented nationwide. Talk more uh, about that. So an extreme risk protection order in California, it's also called a gun violence restraining order, is modeled sort of on what most of us are familiar with, with domestic violence restraining orders. So it's a situation where if you know that somebody's in a time of crisis, in many states it's just family members or law enforcement that have access to the process, you can petition for a temporary removal of someone's guns when they're in a time of crisis. And because it can be done ex parte, which means the person doesn't have to be present in order for the judge to issue the order, they're pretty short. They tend to be two weeks or maybe three weeks at most. And then at the end of that time, they expire unless there's a full hearing, which the person gets to come to and present their own evidence if they want to contest the order. Um, and the judge at that point can deter, you know, look at a full, a full and for him, full and fair hearing, so they can look at all the other evidence and decide if they want to extend it for a longer period of time. And in that initial hearing, um, you have a judge present. You have to have testimony under oath. You have to have evidence provided to show why this particular person presents a risk, a temporary. Uh, imminent risk of harm to themselves or others, and their guns need to be removed. Um, a good example of where this could and should have been used and wasn't available would have been the shooter at Parkland High School. Hmm. Um, that was an individual where lots of people had lots of information about um, the fact that this individual had guns, the fact that he was um, in a crisis and had been making violent threats, and was, if there was uh, an extreme risk protective order available, it would have been a perfect opportunity to remove those guns from that individual and consider whether this is somebody who should be able to acquire guns at all. Um, so that's sort of the basic gist of how it works. It does raise 
interesting questions about due process in the United States because of all of our constitutional rights. Um, we have to approach taking away someone's property through the lens of proper due process. And so these laws were really drafted with that in mind, ensuring, again, based on a similar process in place around domestic violence restraining orders, that it's done in a way that complies with people's concern about due process. The other um, question we get is, well, what if my mean neighbor or my you know, estranged brother wants to mess with me and goes to file this even though there's no evidence. So it's all done with sort of that in mind. How do we make sure the evidence is properly presented in a way that um, ensures no one can you know, abuse this system? How do we ensure that the person whose rights um, are being considered are treated in a way that's fair within our system? So, so the, the pushback, I think the reflexive pushback, to this kind of idea is that it, it, it can't act fast enough uh, to to pre- to prevent somebody who is intending to break the law anyway uh, from doing something that they that they shouldn't do. That that this would work for somebody who is compliant with uh, the laws, but but by the very nature of what you're dealing with here, somebody who seems to be in crisis and is at real risk of doing something to themselves or others, that the law's reach won't quite get to them. How how do you answer that? Well, we know that there's not one law that's going to stop all gun violence. I mean, it has to be just started there. But this is a complex problem, and it requires us to be willing to take comprehensive solutions if we're going to really attempt to, you know, reduce gun violence in a significant way. These laws actually do work really well, though, for what we're talking about. It's interesting that when you dig in on the facts, and we've really done that at the Giffords Law Center, we've done a whole deep dive into how risk protective orders are being used in places like Broward County, where the Parkland shooting happened, and uh, others have taken a close look at how they're being used in places like California. And it turns out that they're actually being used effectively in a lot of cases, and that, honestly, individuals who are intending to commit these acts of mass violence in particular often do give signs. I mean, it's not going to be every case, obviously, um, but in many, many cases, people who are planning or intending to do this kind of harm, they do give signs. Sometimes it's on social media. Sometimes they make comments to family members or to friends. Sometimes they um, do things like go, you know, shoot things up in the backyard and, and neighbors are concerned. So it really does turn out that there is some indication. In California, one of the researchers, Gavin Wint- Garen Wintemute at UC Davis, identified at least just in the last couple of years, 21 instances where risk protective orders in California were used to pre- prevent mass shootings. 21 incidents. And that's a that's a floor. I mean, that's just a, a survey that was done based on protective orders that were issued and looking at the facts. Mm. So we know that they're being used. We know in other states they're being used very effectively to reduce suicide. Um, in a lot of instances, family members and others are aware when somebody's showing signs of being suicidal and um, are presenting a temporary or, or in a time of crisis or present an imminent threat to themselves and are able to go and get the guns away from them temporarily while they seek help. 
suicide is one of those really, um, I would say, sort of not well understood situations in the sense that the the sort of knee-jerk response people have is that you can't really prevent someone from harming themselves if they want to. If, say, you remove the guns, they're just going to find another way. And it turns out that's really not true, that almost 70% of people who try to harm themselves do it within the first hour of ideation, within one hour. So that's a really impulsive act. And if we, if that person has access to a gun, there's a really high likelihood that they're going to be effective at doing great harm to themselves. Mm. Um, people who attempt suicide with a gun are incredibly likely to complete that act and to um, not be able to get help. Whereas with other types of attempts, a lot of times they're not successful and individuals are able to get help and nine out of 10 do not go on to attempt it again. So when you remove those really lethal means from people, you really give them a far, far greater chance of being able to get help and not um, ending up being able to use that gun to hurt themselves. So it's really, really an important and effective tool in preventing suicide. And very often family members in particular are aware when someone is in a time of great crisis. Again, not always. We're not suggesting that any single law or any single thing can be used to prevent all gun violence. But the evidence shows that with suicide, using risk protective orders has been shown to reduce incidence of suicide. There was a really good study in Connecticut about this, showing the impact and effect of these laws. I'm talking with Robin Thomas. She's the executive director of the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. We're talking about the recent tragedies in Atlanta and Boulder, which renews the gun law debate. We're wondering whether it's enough to instigate some change. We're talking right now about extreme risk protection orders that could be implemented uh, nationwide. Uh, they are in place in a number of states. The question is what effect they would have on the gun violence that we see. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. What do you think needs to be done about these mass shootings that we endure over and over and over in this country and the, the, the more general gun violence that dominates uh, our lives in America. Uh, are you somebody who's a gun owner? Give us a call. Tell us what kinds of restrictions you would support that might uh, that might reduce gun violence in, in our country. Uh, would you support uh, these kinds of extreme risk protection order uh, laws? Uh, or do you think that, uh, like a lot of people believe, that it is about uh, cultural violence uh, and not just gun access uh, that, that, that leads us to these kinds of tragedies. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones, 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put comments there, and, uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, we've got a question on Twitter from uh, Liette who asks, the NRA effectively blocked gun reform in Congress for years, but the NRA also declared bankruptcy last year. So what prevents Congress from acting now? It's a really interesting uh, question given the, the power that the NRA had over so many lawmakers. So 
the NRA certainly appears to be on their heels right now. They've declared bankruptcy. They're under investigation by the New York Attorney General and in Washington, D.C. They're facing litigation in a number of places. Certainly, there's a huge tarnish on their reputation with the evidence that's come out in that New York investigation about their internal corruption. None of this surprises us knowing uh, what kind of organization it is and for us having to interact with them all the time. I will say this, though, as much as they are on their heels and they are not in the strong position that we've seen uh, very often in the past, they are not out for the count yet. They are still present. They are still lobbying. They are still in Washington and in other states pushing their agenda. Um, You know, and they've been around a long time. The NRA has been a force in Washington and in state legislatures for the last 40 or 50 years. And they're aggressive and they have single issue voters and they poured $30 million into Donald Trump's first election. Um, They're not a lightweight when it comes to their reputation, you know, and lobbying in Washington and elsewhere. So, Yes, they are weakened, and we hope that they might be even gone, perhaps, in the not-too-distant future. But they're still there. And, you know, Washington, D.C. seems to take a bit of time to catch up with reality. We've seen the fact that more than 90 percent of Americans support universal background checks, Mm -hmm. and yet it doesn't pass in Washington, D.C. And so it begs the question, if more than 90 percent of Americans, that's just an astounding number in support of a policy, you know, support this law, and yet you can't get a pass. How do, how do things work? Who do these guys report to if they're not speaking for the American people? And I think it does speak to the fact that the NRA has been there a long time pushing their agenda and creating a wedge issue out of this. And like I said, they also have single-issue voters. It may not be a huge number anymore these days, but any number of single-issue voters, voters can have some impact. So they're still sort of creating a problem and exerting some influence. We are looking at it waning to some to some extent, but it's still there. It's still part of the equation. Um, and I think it's going to take a little more time and effort before that shifts completely. I'll just also add that a lot has changed on the side of those of us pushing for gun reform. Um, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, this was not a, this was still a third rail political issue. We didn't have a ton of money in the political space. There were certainly groups like um, the predecessor to Giffords and Brady that were out there fighting for change, but we didn't have the kind of resources that the NRA has. So we really were, they were almost unopposed for a long time and that allowed them to get really entrenched. Well, that has changed. I mean, since the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School, there's been a complete sea change on this issue. Giffords became, you know, a powerhouse organization on this issue. Every town became stronger. The Moms Demand Action was formed, which is a very powerful grassroots organization. Um, And it's really shifted the conversation. That's when we saw Americans really come out strongly in favor of reform. So in the last less than 10 years, we've really seen a major shift in the American people, candidates are now running on a gun reform platform and winning. You know, Lucy McBath in Georgia running on a gun reform platform after she lost her son Jordan to gun violence mm-hmm. and beating a Republican in Georgia on a gun reform. You know, this is 
this is a whole new world. We're seeing, you know, dozens and dozens of candidates across the country taking this issue up and winning. And that's new. That's just in the last 10 years. So things are changing very rapidly on this issue. And I would say D.C. hasn't quite caught up yet, but they're getting there gradually. Hmm. Um, so I do think it's changing. Yeah. Uh, I should also point out that that question actually came from uh, Dr. Liette Gidlow, who is uh, a professor of history here at uh, at Wayne State University. So, uh, Liette, thank you very much for that question. Let's go to Terrence in Detroit. Terrence, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing, um, Steve? Are you all right today? I'm good. How are you? That's good. I'm glad you got to me quick because I am working. Um, <laughs> like I said, I don't support any. And I, and, I, and I have sympathy to everybody that's lost their family and loved ones due to the tragic shootings of um, people out there. But um, I'm sorry, but you can't legislate crazy. You can't legislate if somebody decides to wake up one day and do harm to themselves, their family, or the public. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody that has com- – all the people that have committed the gun violence and the mass shootings all purchased their firearms legally. So let's say we institute more gun laws. And then it happens again, and then we institute more gun laws, and then we institute more gun laws, and it just keeps happening. Then the next thing you know, the only people who have firearms are the criminals, and the criminals are always going to have firearms. Hmm. Only people that's going to inhibit is me, people like me and you, Stephen Henderson. If you own a firearm, and I have, you, Stephen, you seem like a great guy to me. You really do. Been listening <laughs> to you for years and watched you in the newspaper. But if you, you know, you own fire, I don't know what to push you over the edge. I don't know what might make you go crazy one day and, and what, snap and wake up and do something. You can't legislate that. That's all I'm saying. You cannot so, legislate crazy out of society. Yeah. So, so Terrence, I, I do want to give Robin Thomas a chance to, to, to answer you here. But, but I wonder if you can talk just a little about what you think then we should do to reduce gun violence. You, do. you don't you think we can legislate. do anything? Yeah. You can't. I mean, you can try to. I have no idea. All I know is, 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 is anybody can wake up on any given day because mm-hmm. they got fired from their job, their wife left them. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea. They, they, you can wake up. And, and we, Pandora's box is already open, yeah. meaning the guns have been in our society. We, we are a gun culture. We've been a gun culture since the invention of the United States of America. You cannot put guns back in the box. Yeah. That's the only way. I mean, they're already out here. Right. Even, Terrence, if you, even if you. Yeah, yeah I, I really appreciate the, the call and, and the arguments you're making. I mean, obviously, I don't agree, but I think you, you, you make a really eloquent point about uh, the, the futility you think is behind uh, the, the kind of legislation that. I wish uh, it was would... something we could do. I really do. I don't yeah. know, because all the people that snapped that, I mean, all the people that didn't do this, they, they went crazy for some reason. Yeah. And bought their guns legally. Right. So, uh, Robin Thomas, I wonder uh, if you can answer what, uh, what Terrence is talking yes. about here. No, that's a very common um, sort of that's the NRA's argument. It's a very sort of the slippery slope argument. I would say a couple of things in response to that, focusing really on the facts here. First of all, states with comprehensive gun regulation, you could talk about Hawaii or California or New York or any number of other states that have comprehensive gun reform have much, much, much lower rates of gun violence and gun death. So let's just start with that simple fact where you have stronger gun laws and fewer guns in a given state, you have lower gun death rates. Mm -hmm. So that just keeps it simple. Now let's sort of take another step and say, um, you know, reflect on what the other part of his question was. Someone can just wake up in the morning and they could choose to shoot someone regardless of, you know, what kind of laws you have. Well, 
for example, the shooter in the Midland-Odessa shootings in Texas um, a couple of years ago, that individual tried to get a gun from a licensed gun dealer. He failed a background check. And then he just went to a private seller and bought a gun without a background check. And that's the guns he used to commit all of that harm. Mm -hmm. So if we took steps to close the background check system, we make it much more difficult for someone who wakes up in the morning and wants to do harm to get that gun. So background checks can provide this really important floor on our ability to allow people trying to do harm to get a hold of those guns. You know, 96% of people who are in prison got their guns through a mean where they didn't have to get a background check right. through an you know illegal sale or sale in many states where you don't need to get a background check. So, you know, there are there is information that shows us that actually putting in place background checks, putting in place a whole comprehensive set of regulations can and will reduce gun violence. There's this sort of, to me, sad, um, overarching thought, oh, there's nothing we can do. This is just how it is. We have to live like this with this constant drumbeat of not just mass shootings. I mean, that's the other thing. The caller was referring to mass shootings to some extent. That's They're horrific, and they get a lot of our public attention because they're so personal. But really, they make up a small number of shootings mm-hmm. every day. The shootings we're seeing every day are suicides, are happening in impacted communities. Um, there's so much we can do to reduce those shootings. There's so many steps we can take that are proven by research, peer-reviewed research. These laws do work. As I said earlier, they're not going to stop every shooting, but they will dramatically reduce the number of people dying every day. So it really is something where we need to have hope. We need to step up to the research. We need to be willing to take action to deal with this problem. And I guarantee you, if we took comprehensive federal reform, we could still protect people's Second Amendment rights, and we could see a drastic reduction in gun violence and gun deaths in this country. Okay. Robin Thomas, executive director of the Giffords Law Center. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about gun reform with the leader of the Michigan chapter of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about gun legislation and whether it could reduce some of the gun violence that we see in America, both mass shootings and other kinds of uh, gun violence. We want to hear from you as well. What do you think we should be doing to reduce gun violence in America? Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to work you into the conversation. I also want to welcome another voice to the conversation now. Emily Durbin is a chapter leader for the Michigan chapter of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Emily, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Hi, thanks so much for having me. So uh, here in Michigan, we've been talking about guns throughout the pandemic, even as national attention has waned a bit. The state capitol in Lansing was flooded with armed extremists who carried assault rifles into the gallery of the state senate chamber, something I, I don't think I will ever be able to get out of my mind. Uh, still, it feels like we haven't been having these conversations as often um, and in the same way that that we should be. What's your assessment of where we are with the gun debate here in Michigan? Well, you know, Michigan is not immune to gun violence, and uh, we're not immune to the increase in gun violence that's happened during this pandemic. And what we've seen in Michigan is what we see across the country. For in the past, NRA would draw up a wish list of things they wanted from state uh, lawmakers and then try to get their wishes done. And uh, you may be surprised to hear that in Michigan, the gun lobby has not been able to advance many of their key agenda points of the last several years mm. because there have been a groundswell of survivors and other activists actively advocating with their state lawmakers about the importance for keeping the safeguards we have in Michigan against gun violence and furthering the cause of preventing more gun violence here in Michigan. And, you know, we see here in Michigan what we see in a lot of places, which is this topic of gun violence and gun violence prevention, you know, largely being treated like a political football, um, you know, having a meta conversation about why we haven't done X or why we can't do Y instead of looking at what we know, which is that we can take steps to prevent gun violence and focusing on what we're going to do and how, um, you know, there are many, many survivors of gun violence in Michigan, most of whom are survivors of domestic violence. Uh, death by gun suicide, uh, violence in their communities. And those folks have been working for years to elevate this issue so the lawmakers and other people in their community are aware of how this happens every single day in our state. And we really need to be talking and focusing on how gun violence in Michigan absolutely erodes our sense of safety in our communities. And it is stripping us of the people we love and care about every single day. Hmm. And laws are one means by which we can make our state safer, but they're not the only means. And and just last month, the state Senate passed a resolution Republicans say would, quote, preserve the Second Amendment. It states that the Senate would oppose any federal laws that infringe on the right to bear arms. That seems like going in the uh, in the opposite direction. I mean, I think that's a signal to a particular segment of the extreme right base for whom the Second Amendment is seen as a very mobilizing uh, political force. That's a little bit of a myth of the gun lobby that the voice of an extreme group of gun owners should own the conversation about what to do about gun violence, should own the conversation about the gun culture in our country. But in fact, most Michiganders uh, overwhelmingly support important policies that we know empirically prevent gun violence, like background checks maintaining our permitting system, keeping women and families safe from armed domestic abusers. So you know, these, this is the kind of political maneuvering that I'm talking about where these signals are sent. Um, we stand for your Second Amendment rights. So in fact, that's a totally false way to even think about this problem. Hmm. Gun violence prevention activists don't want to erode the Second Amendment. They want to make sure that in hand in hand with our Second Amendment, we have protections and safeguards that make sure that those rights are used responsibly and that keep us all safe and particularly the most vulnerable safe from gun violence. Hmm. Uh, a listener on Twitter says, uh, I wasn't a gun owner until 2020. I never thought of owning one until about five years ago. But I came to a crossroads. While I'm shopping for bread and someone decides to shoot up the store that I'm in, I want a voice in whether I get shot or not. Will carrying a firearm help me? I don't know. 
I hope I never experienced that. But again, I feel I had to make a decision, either take my chances as society continues to heat up or take advantage of my Second Amendment rights. You know, I think that's a really uh, thoughtful uh, approach to, to trying to explain why you might have uh, a firearm. Emily, I, I, I want to hear what your response is uh, to that thinking. Yeah, I, I think that view resonates with a lot of people. We're living in a culture inundated with gun violence, and we see that those who are in a position of power to change that culture have not done enough to make us safer. So people start thinking about what they can do personally to keep themselves and their families safe. And unfortunately, what we know from the evidence base is that Owning a gun for personal protection and keeping it in your home actually puts you at higher risk for having that gun used against you um, or used by someone in your home uh, for gun suicide. We also know there's no evidence that folks carrying out in public are commonly able to end a mass shooting. And, you know, that's a, a narrative that's pushed by the gun lobby because it helps sell a lot of guns. It makes you, gives you a sense of security that you can protect yourself from that. And we all need to be saying, how do we wind up in this situation? What are the steps that we can take to change this culture so that we are all safer, rather than each of us feeling we have to take a step that we might be reluctant to do that actually increases our risk? Mm, yeah. Uh, thanks very much for that uh, comment on Twitter. Let's quickly go to Stuart and Dexter. Stuart, I've got a, just a couple minutes left, but I want to get you in. Oh, sure. Um, you know what? I joined the NRA when I first became a gun owner, and after I started reading the rhetoric, I, I was pretty dismayed. They're not for any type of background check whatsoever. And, and selfishly, I joined because they had a nice duffel bag that I wanted to get. Um, <laughs> I am a concealed and carry uh, individual. I do own a gun, including an AR. I use uh, this more for practice shooting. On a rare occasion, I will carry my gun. Uh, and as far as the last caller said, I, you know, I'd be very dismayed to have to take someone's life, um, whether it was in a situation where my life was in danger. Um, that's, that's a problem you have when you carry a gun, that you have yeah. to be ready to be able to say that if my life is in danger, I'm going to shoot somebody and yeah. That would weigh heavy on me. Yeah. Stuart, uh, again, uh, like the previous comment, really thoughtful uh, approach to this. Emily Durbin, I've only got about 30 seconds left, but I want to give you a chance to respond. I, yeah, I, I, I resonate with that. A lot of gun owners say that they no longer feel that the values of the gun lobby are consistent with why they became a gun owner in the first place. Mm -hmm. And many, many gun owners who are responsible enjoy using their weapons for sport shooting, for hunting, may have it for personal protection endorse many policies that the rest of Americans also agree with, including background checks and permitting system and keeping guns out of the hands of domestic abusers. And this isn't a gun owners versus not gun owners debate. This is all Americans coming together to agree on some effective solutions. Okay. Uh, Emily Derman, chapter leader for Michigan's chapter of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. It's great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. That is going to do it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow when we're going to talk about the frightening numbers we're hearing about teacher turnover here in Michigan and particular he particularly here in Detroit during the pandemic. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.